when I last met you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Darth. These are the famous last words between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader uh, from Star Wars A New Hope, the first episode that came out. You see, for years and years, the young Anakin Skywalker had been the student, the, the Padawan, the apprentice of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he learned from his master and grew in his knowledge and in his understanding and power in the Jedi ways. Uh, but then, as he faced new challenges in life, he began to be tempted to move beyond the Jedi ways. A sinister voice whispered that there was hidden knowledge beyond what he had received. And if Anakin would open himself up to the dark side, he could avail himself to new insights, new powers and abilities. He didn't need to abandon the teaching he had learned so much as he needed to augment and supplement it, realizing the limitations of what he had received. Thus it was that Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader. This morning we come to a passage in the book of Colossians where, believe it or not, uh, those Christians were tempted in a similar way. They had begun to contemplate teachings, new teachings, which sought to move them beyond the supremacy and exclusivity of Christ. They began to believe, perhaps, uh, that there was more outside of Christ that they needed to know, these Colossian Christians if they were to survive in this world. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in verses 1 to 7 this morning. If you're sick of my Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter analogies, I do apologize. You can buy me some fiction, increase my, uh, the corpus that I'm reading or watching. I do apologize for the repetition. So far in the book of Colossians, we've seen the Apostle Paul commend the faith and hope and love of the believers there. Uh, he's prayed for them that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then we saw him rejoice in how God the Father had rescued them through the ministry of God the Son, through the work of Jesus Christ. And then last week in verses 24 to 29, uh, the Apostle Paul explained how God had simultaneously called him to suffer and proclaim Christ to the nations as the, the vehicle for gospel advancement. And so we arrive at chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we'll have two sections in verses 1 to 7. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. Because true wisdom is found in Christ, continue walking in him. Because true wisdom is found in Christ, continue walking in him. So look with me at Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you 
in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses, verses 1 to 5, entitled, Paul's Ministry to the Colossians. Uh, and at this point, beginning in verse 1, uh, Paul is explaining his desire to be with them despite his absence. This is today's passage in elaboration of verses 28 and 29 of last week's passage. So just look back a few verses. Paul had said, Him, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So in verse 1, Paul further unpacks his struggle. Uh, His struggle on behalf not only of the Colossians, but also the Laodiceans, and for all who had never met Paul. What is he referring to when he's referring to his struggle for them? Well, I think he has two things in mind. Uh, first, it's, it's kind of what we saw last week. It was his struggle in suffering, right? In verse 24, Paul is suffering and being afflicted for the sake of, on behalf of the church. He is so committed to proclaiming Christ and the gospel that no matter the personal injury that he accrued, he continued to minister. And then second, I think when Paul is referring to his struggle, he's referring to his prayers. Chapter 4, we read this last week. Chapter 4, verse 12 reads, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf, the same exact words, in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. The point is that Epaphras was struggling for the Colossians' maturity in Christ, just as in verse 28, Paul had been proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Christ for their maturity in Christ. And so here he's laboring, he's praying, he's struggling that Christ would be formed in the Colossian Christians. This is how Paul is struggling on their behalf. But uh, do you notice that Paul says that he wants them to know his struggle for them? I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Why is that? Well, Paul says it's so that, verse 2, their hearts may be encouraged. Uh, That is, Paul wants these Christians to have their hearts comforted and stirred up. He wants the knowledge of his struggling prayers and suffering to be, he wants that to be known to them because it will reaffirm and confirm his love for them. You know, it's the evidence of his affection for them, of his love and relationship with them, that Paul hadn't forgotten the Colossians. Uh, I think it's kind of like when a parent uh, states to their child who hypothetically might be tempted to grumble or complain that their parents don't love them. And so the parent responds, well, if I didn't love you, would I make you breakfast every morning? If I didn't love you, would I pray for you and organize play dates and save for your college fund and buy you healthy food and make delicious brownies and clean up your toys and buy you toys and read the Bible with you and take you on fun vacations? 
the parent is going above and beyond to illustrate how their labors and their struggle is for the sake of they, those they love. So Paul here wants them to know, these Colossians, just how hard he's working, not for his own sake, but how hard he's struggling for them. The point is that the intensity of the labor indicates the intensity of the love. And so the fact that Paul's been imprisoned in a Roman prison hasn't stopped his ministry for them. No, far from it. Instead, he has continued to struggle for them. That's likely why in chapter 1, Paul twice mentioned how he was praying for them. You notice that if you just look back at chapter 1 twice, we see in verse 3, Paul says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And then verse 9, And so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Though Paul had been restricted from seeing them face to face because he's locked up, well, he's still able to minister. He still is able to pray for them. I think this should be an encouragement to you, Christian, that you too can do great spiritual good for others, though they are across the globe. You can struggle and labor on their behalf for their maturity in Christ, for their blessing and benefit, for missionaries and former church members, for family and friends. You know, though like Paul, we may not be able to be there face to face, we can pray for them. And let's not underestimate what prayer does. Not because like in praying, we are powerful, but in praying, we're tapping into the God who is powerful. You know, we're not in Arkansas, but he is. Uh, we're not in Vienna, Austria, but he is. And so we can pray for those we love that God would do them good there, even where we ourselves cannot be. And then, you know, perhaps when you do pray for them, let them know about it. Uh, encourage their hearts by letting them know of the struggle that you have on their behalf. And so returning to verse 2, the Colossians will have their hearts encouraged as they are knit together in love. It's not entirely clear who is being knit together in love here. Uh, it could be the Apostle Paul, is kind of what I lean towards, it could be the Apostle Paul and the Colossians, emphasizing how his struggle, how his laboring and prayer knits them together in love. Or it could be the Colossians themselves being united in love. Either way, the point is the loving unity that, that we as Christians are to have uh, as our hearts are knit together in the gospel. And then at the end of verse 2, Paul focuses less on the Colossians knowing about his struggle and more on the purpose or goal of his struggle for them. Again, he's already stated in verse 28 that, it's, that he might present them mature in Christ I hear it's similar. It's that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, if Paul wanted his struggle to be known to encourage the heart, here we see that the purpose of his ministry was to instruct the minds of these Colossian Christians. Uh, Paul wants them to gain knowledge, and he wants them to realize that this knowledge, according to verse 3, is in Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, so you see, there were some voices that had begun to insist that there was needed spiritual knowledge and insight, but that knowledge was outside of Christ. The Colossian Christians needed to look to other deities, other spiritualities, other powers to, to make their way through the spiritual world. Yet here, Paul reminds the congregation that they don't have to go outside of Christ for spiritual wisdom and understanding. Instead, true wisdom and insight is found in Christ Jesus. So friend, would you understand the spiritual secrets of this world? Uh, do you want to have unveiled the mystery at the heart of the universe? Well, then look no further than Christ. Paul's ministry existed to proclaim Christ, to warn and teach in all wisdom, because Christ is the fount. He is the source of all true insight and knowledge and understanding and heavenly wisdom. Uh, this means, brothers and sisters, that we don't need a Muhammad, or a Joseph Smith, or a Mary Baker Eddy. We don't need another prophet to disclose to us the truth about God. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. You don't need another teacher because you have Christ's Spirit dwelling in you. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's final revelation. And so we don't have to find other spiritual gurus to find enlightenment. So, for example, if you ask, what is God like? Well, the answer is found in Christ. Do you want to know who is my creator? Look to Christ. What is the good life? The pattern is found in Christ. Will God punish evildoers? Remember Christ. Does God show mercy to the penitent? Christ is key. Where's this universe heading? Is there a reason for existence and life? The answer is Christ. That's why I think Paul stated last week in verse 28, him we proclaim. The, the point is that in proclaiming Christ, Paul was declaring the most glorious, infinite, beautiful, majestic, wise, and eternal being that can be conceived of. It is no restriction or little thing to proclaim Christ. You know, we would get bored eventually of Aristotle or Shakespeare or Oprah. Pick any other human teacher, and there is a limit on how much you can explore. But beloved, we will never mine the depths of Christ's infinite beauty and glory and work. He is always infinitely relevant and the most important factor in every circumstance of our lives. And so I just, I just want to take a test case here. You're saying, Scott, that Christ is the most important thing, that true wisdom and insight is found in him. Well, what about like, how do I, this is, it's a little bit of a silly example, but how do I install an air conditioner in my house? Are you saying, Scott, that Christ is the most relevant thing? That if I know Christ, that I know what I need to know to install a window unit in my house? Or how to, like, yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. Because if you know Christ, well, he informs the reason why you're doing it. 
to love and serve your family? Because creation is a good thing, and even if you're a single person by yourself, it's good to subdue that little space and make it air-conditioned. You you do it out of love for others, and you do it for the glory of God. There is a telos, a reason, a goal for all of our work, whether you eat or drink, whether you install air conditioners or not. Do all to the glory of God. So if you know Christ, something as mundane as installing a window unit in your apartment this weekend, maybe not this weekend, well, even that, even such a thing as that, you know the most important things. And you think, well, Scott, I still don't know how to like actually install and put it together. Well, that's okay. You know, so you're hot. You're still gonna glorify God in your hotness, whether you eat or drink, whether you're hot or cold, glorify God. No matter what circumstances we face in life, no matter the practicalities that that we should pay attention to. I'm not saying don't pay attention to, to learning these things. But the most important thing in our life is always Christ. Somebody might be hot or cold for a week or a month or a season, but Christ's glory will redound forever and ever and ever. The good works that we do for others will glorify Christ and show his beauty forever and ever and ever. We are to understand Christ's person and character and work because we are to understand him rightly, to live rightly. Uh, Paul, Paul doesn't want the Colossian Christians here learning myths. He doesn't want them to devote themselves to speculative knowledge about these heavenly beings that supposedly require their attention. Uh, Paul wants them to understand the full assurance, the, the fullness of knowledge that is found in Christ. Uh, part of this, what this means is that, you know, brothers and sisters, you and I, we should devote ourselves to growing in our knowledge of Christ. You know, year after year, we want to be knowing more of his character, more of his work, more of his person. Um, I think part of what this means is that that theology matters. Part of what this means is that we should give ourselves to reading books that instruct us as to who God is. That's why we have literally a a line item, a budget for for pastors and staff of this church to allow them professional development and and to buy books. Because we think it's important that they know the truth about who God is. That's why we give out free books on Sunday nights so that you will continue to grow in your knowledge of the gospel. That's what Paul wants for these Colossian Christians. And and then in verse 4, he explicitly states why he's so insistent upon Christ's supremacy. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You know, Paul is exhorting these Colossian Christians to see beyond empty rhetoric but that's challenging, isn't it? Because the whole point is, is that it's, it's plausible words. If Paul had said, I don't want anyone to delude you with really implausible arguments, well, then the Colossians would be like, yeah, we got that. But here, Paul's saying, you need to be able to see through. Uh, in ancient times and in modern, there's always been a power to words. You know, they, were, they are powerful and potent, such that they can be used for great good, or great evil. They convey ideas, and ideas change lives. 
Beloved, this means that we should beware. Uh, Beware the television you watch, the news articles you read, the podcasts you listen to, even the sermons you take in, that you be not deluded by plausible words. Uh, Listen with discernment. Don't be led astray by false teaching. Some of the most eloquent preachers on TV, on the internet, proclaim a false gospel. So you can't just go with like, oh, who's your favorite public speaker? No, you need to test everything by the word of God. Be like the Bereans. And so verse 5 concludes this section on Paul's ministry as he returns to the theme of verse 1. If Paul is physically absent from the Colossians, does this mean he is unconcerned about them? Well, we read in verse 5. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Just as his struggle is evidence of his love, so here his absence is no evidence of his indifference. Far from it. Instead, Paul reminds these Colossian Christians that I am with you. I'm with you, though I'm physically locked up and I can't get to you. My flesh is not present. I'm with you in spirit. I'm praying for you. I'm aware of what's going on in your church so that I'm rejoicing with you. Um, Let me just mention two applications here. First, it's better to be present in body. Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul was not talking about smartphones or the internet or live streaming technologies. Let me just state, like, super briefly that there is something about physical presence that ministers to other people. Uh, There's something about being with someone in their grief or in their joy that is comforting and encouraging and a demonstration of love. So if you're locked up in a jail or if there's a global pandemic, you know, praise God for the ability to write letters or to FaceTime. Uh, As Paul says, I am with you in spirit. Uh, But let me encourage you, beloved, to continue making being physically present with the saints a high priority in your week. Uh, Paul longed to be with these Christians. Uh, Make that your desire to physically be with God's people week in and week out, even as you do that. Uh, And and then second, notice that Paul had unfulfilled ministry desires that he had to entrust to the Lord. This this, This really struck me this week. One of the marks of being a Christian, well, it's not that now all our desires get fulfilled, but one of the marks of being a Christian is that our aspirations change. We don't mainly just desire for ourselves, but for others. You know, previously, before we were Christians, we thought about ourselves and our name and our money and our priorities and our agenda and our whatever. But as a Christian, all of a sudden, God the Spirit just kind of bubbles up in us these desires to do good for others. Even the desires that God himself prevents us from fulfilling. It just struck me, like, Christian, be encouraged that the same God who creates in you the desire to serve others is the same God who sometimes prevents you from fulfilling that whether it's bringing a meal to a sick family 
or cleaning someone's house to give them a break, instructing your own kids, hosting out-of-town visitors, discipling a new Christian, evangelizing your neighbor, being hospitable towards outsiders, praying more for the lost, giving more to the church, preaching God's word more often, teaching the Bible to the kids at Trinity, or a thousand other good desires. Don't be discouraged if, like Paul, you are unable to fulfill those. Uh, God is in control. He knows the limitations he has placed on your time and your resources and your abilities. And so with whatever acts of service, whatever aspirations of ministry uh, for our family or our friends or loved ones or neighbors that we cannot fulfill, we kind of just have to be like Paul. We have to entrust these people to the Lord. Say, I'm doing my best, but I'm locked up right now. So I'm going to entrust them to the Lord. Whatever it is in your life, brothers and sisters, you can entrust those things to God. Uh, what does Paul mean when he talks about he's rejoicing with the Colossians? Well, I just think it's so sweet uh, when we see an example of, of those in authority rejoicing you know, in those under them. I, I just love that Paul doesn't lord his authority over. He's like a coach who praises an athlete or when a mother commends her daughter or a father, a son, or when a boss, an employee. So here, Paul, it's a sweet thing when he encourages the Colossians as he draws attention to evidences of God's grace in them. Uh, he commends their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. I think that first phrase is really interesting. Uh, it can sound a bit stuffy, can't it? As if a commanding officer asks of his subordinate, you know, is everything in order? Well, in the church, aren't we supposed to be led by God's spirit? Uh, I mean, shouldn't we be like kind of, you know, free to do this, free to do that? Uh, order and structure and organization, doesn't that inhibit living by the spirit? Well, I don't think Paul is commending any kind of rigidity on their part, but rather the, the order in, the life, in life and in the local church, order often sets the limits which provide the space for flourishing and freedom. Right, so a pianist practices her scales to allow her to improvise fluently. Uh, a schoolboy learns, school learns the structures of grammar, not to restrain his speech, but to allow it to flow more powerfully and fluently. And so Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 14.40, referring to the weekly worship gatherings of the church, all things should be done decently and in order. It seems that Paul is here rejoicing in the structure and orderliness of the Colossian church. And he also praises the firmness of their faith in Christ. Here the emphasis seems to be on the unshakable nature of their trust in the Savior. There are so many things that test our faith, aren't there? Uh, whether it is prosperity or affliction persecution or doubts, sin or guilt or shame or opportunities or uncertainties. I mean, life is just one big test of faith. Every circumstance in your life this week, God is testing your faith. God is refining your faith. When things go well, will you praise yourself? Or will you praise God? When things are hard, will you fall into self-pity or prayerfulness. Everything in our lives is this test of faith. And so he's commending, Paul is the Colossians, 
that their faith was firm and dependable. It was strong. And so we come to the second section of our passage entitled, Walking in Christ. It's in light of Paul's ministry to the Colossians, in light of his struggle for them to know the fullness of the knowledge of God in Christ, that Paul states in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Really, in verses 6 and 7, there's, there's just kind of one, there is one main verb. It's there at the end of verse 6, just read it, walk in him. And so verses 6 and 7 kind of boil down to that, walk in Christ. And Paul gives us two reasons we should do that and four ways that we do that. The two reasons are found at the beginning of verse 6. First, the therefore indicates that Paul's argument has come to a conclusion You know, he's just pointed out that the fullness of the riches of insight are found in Christ. And so it's in light of that that he's going to say, walk in Christ. You know, it's because Christ is full that you should abide in him. And then second, Paul states, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. The point is that the good news, the gospel about Christ's person and work Well, you've already received it. Paul had mentioned it in chapter 1 when he talked about Epaphras bringing the gospel to them. And so Paul's point is, look, you started well. You received the truth. Now don't abandon it. You've received it. And so Christian, don't deconstruct your faith, seeking to move beyond what you have been taught. In a society obsessed with novelty and that's skeptical of things that are passed down and handed down to us, one of the marks of mature Christianity is not abandoning that which we have received. These Colossian Christians had heard a faithful gospel message in Epaphras' preaching. And so Paul wants them to stay tethered to that. Uh, It's so sad. I, I trust you guys have the same experience. When you see friends, family members, who once were walking with Christ, they had received the gospel, and they think they found something new and better, some some new take on Christianity, some new understanding of who Jesus really is, or how the apostles perverted Jesus' message. Uh, They think they have found something that was once lacking. Oh, brothers and sisters, I I beg of you, don't try to move on from Christ. If you try to improve upon the message you have received, you will only make it worse. These Colossians had received the news that Christ Jesus is the Lord. This is a, a big deal, a big statement. It's to state that Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish rabbi and carpenter from a no name village, is the Christ, right? He's the Messiah, the King of Israel. And more than that, he's the Lord of Israel. The the Lord, the very name that Jews ascribe to God. Yahweh, which was translated as kurios or Lord in the Old Testament, that is applied to this Jewish peasant. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth is God in flesh. The God of Israel became a man. 
Uh, That's why when Christians say that Jesus is Lord, we're not just saying Jesus is in control. We're not just saying Jesus is master. That's true. We're saying Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord God. He's the God of heaven and earth. This is what Paul is commending to these Christians to continue in. And again, it struck me this week, please t- tell, come find me after service if you think you disagree. I can't think of a single verse in the New Testament where someone has too high a view of Jesus that then needs to be corrected. Like if you, if, seriously, if you're aware of something, let me know. I think there are lots of verses where people misunderstand his identity and they underestimate him. They don't understand his deity and his fullness. But I can't think of any examples where Jesus is overestimated. So Paul doesn't here say, I know you received the good news that Jesus is Lord. I'm here to tell you, bring it back a notch. Nope. He says, you've heard it exactly right. Jesus is Lord of Israel, Lord of all. And so it's because they've heard this message, it's because all the riches of understanding are in Christ that Paul gives us that main verb, main clause, walk in him. You know, we are a sedentary people, more likely to sit and drive a car than anything else. Uh, But back then, walking was the normal means of transportation. It was exceedingly common. So that's why in the Bible, Old Testament and New, uh, the phrase of walking, it became synonymous with living, right? So walk a certain way, live a certain way. In chapter one, Paul had already prayed for the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So go about your day-to-day living, fully pleasing to him. It's because walking is such an apt illustration of life that many people talk today about the journey of life. Uh, You know, it was this very image that John Bunyan took up in his famous Pilgrim's Progress. You remember that allegory where the pilgrim Christian, he travels from the city of destruction to the celestial city, to heaven. And on this journey, Christian is walking the straight and narrow. You know, he faces innumerable difficulties, toils and snares, dangers abound. While he often stumbles and is frightened and even led astray, it is always through Christ that he continues on his journey. And so Christians, keep walking in Christ. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't stop. Don't turn back. One Christian describes the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And this means that endurance is needed. The key to the Christian life isn't learning new and novel ideas. It's going deeper in your knowledge and love and obedience and trust in Christ. Uh, So older saints, don't stop reading the Bible. Don't stop showing up at church. Don't stop rehearsing the gospel to yourself. Don't think, you know, I've heard all this before. Uh, There's nothing new in this. Give give me something new. Give me something exciting. No, keep walking in Christ. And younger saints, don't naively assume that that which is new is better than what came before it. 
it is usually true that the old paths, the well-trodden ways, are the safest ones. And so when Paul says, walk in him, uh, the point, again, is that we don't need worldly philosophies and wisdom from outside of Christ. We don't need other spiritual gurus to chart your path through life. Uh, because if you understand Christ, you understand the most important thing about the universe. But if you miss him, you will only ever understand a partial understanding of everything. I think we come here to, to what is basically the main point of the book of Colossians. And if it's not the main point, it's like really, really close. Okay? When Paul says walk in Christ, he, he's saying don't worry about these things outside of Christ but walk in Christ, and he's about to say rooted in him, built up in him. I think what Paul is saying is that growth in the Christian life doesn't move beyond Christ, but goes deeper into him. Growth in the Christian life doesn't move beyond Christ, but goes deeper in him. This doesn't mean, obviously, there's no value to learning math or science or art or literature or even philosophy. But as John Piper puts it in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. Friends, that one great reality is Christ. That's why we need to walk in him. And so how do we do that? Well, Paul concludes our passage with four ways. First, we walk in him as we are rooted in him. You see, Christ must be our stability and foundation in life. Uh, why is it that these great oak trees, right, can, can shoot up thousands, or no, not thousands, hundreds of feet in the air? They can remain standing amidst hurricanes and nor'easters. Yeah, you guys are like, what trees have you been seeing, Scott? <laughs> right? I mean, you think about the, the hurricanes and the nor'easters, the snow, the wind, the rain, and they're still there hundreds of years later, hundreds of feet in the air. How do they do it? It's because of their roots, right? Without the roots, the trees would be nothing. They'd blow over at a hairdryer. The roots provide the stability and security, the nutrients and the sustenance for growth. So it is, friends, that if you are not feeding on Christ by faith, if you are not nourished by him, if he does not anchor your soul, you will be blown apart by life's trials. Your joy will prove fleeting. Your contentment, one phone call away from dissipating. Your patience and love for others, one diagnosis away from being twisted. Uh, friends, if we would be strong in this life, if we would be a shade to others to be able to help and nurture and sustain others, if you would grow as a Christian, you must be rooted, grounded in Christ. Second, we walk in Christ as we're built up in him. So the, the roots had denoted cause and stability. 
But growth being built up, it indicates the goal, the purpose. The language of being built up, it's similar to the, the temple language we'd used a few weeks ago. So as, as a church, the you know, Christians, we are the living stones being built together to form the temple of God, where God's presence dwells. And so for us to be built up in Christ means that we become more like him. It means that we become more like our Savior into a more fitting place for God to reside. And so it's so important that we see that Christ is both the sustaining and stabilizing root of our lives and the built-up pinnacle of our existence. He's the A to Z. And it's important that we realize this because whoever glorified a tree for its roots, right? Nobody. The leaf peepers don't flock to New England to look at the roots of these trees. They, they go to see the glory, the heights, the beauty. I'm sure the roots are great, but the roots exist for something else. And so the question is, what are you being built up into? Do you have yourself at the pinnacle? You know, Christ exists to support me being the best me that I define myself. Or are we being built up into the temple of Christ? He is the one who grounds us, but he's also the point in which our lives are aiming. He is the reason we are being constructed into the temple. So Christian, this means that any loveliness that you possess, it is Christ in you. Any peace amidst uncertainty, any joy amidst sorrow, any sacrifices you cheerfully endure, that is you being built up in him, even as you draw on his power. Third, the third way we, we walk in Christ is as we are established in the faith, just as we were taught. Here, Paul is, is not referring to personal belief, like personal faith or trust, but rather the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It refers to the doctrines that these Colossians had been taught. And so friends, again, I mean, I, I don't want to bang this drum too much, but uh, theology is not the enemy of discipleship. Sometimes people talk about doctrine and right theology as irrelevant to growing as a Christian or even detrimental to growth in Christ. Uh, people say things like doctrine divides. We just need a simple faith. Well, here Paul reminds us that any true following after Christ must include doctrinal fidelity. We receive Christ Jesus the Lord and then we walk in him, not abandoning these truths, but going deeper into them. And so forth and finally, we walk in Christ as we abound in thanksgiving. Now, this is really interesting. We, we had covered this a few months ago. Uh, Paul prayed in chapter 1, verse 10, that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He actually gave four ways that happened back then. And do you remember, I think it's verse 12, what the fourth one is? Yeah. I, he concluded that list of ways you walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, by stating you give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Why does, God, why does Paul keep bringing up Thanksgiving? I mean, is he like early American settler? Is he just like, what's he getting at here? Why is Thanksgiving such a big deal in the Christian life? 
Well, beloved, it's because thanksgiving is the thermometer revealing how much you understand salvation to be all of grace. Thanksgiving is the thermometer, which tells you how much you understand that salvation is all of grace. Because if I think I get into heaven on the basis of my good deeds, and I've been a pretty decent person lately, well, I'll tend to think less highly of Christ's work. But when I realize what a rotten sinner I am, that all we like sheep have gone astray, that all fall short of the glory of God, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind, that the wages of sin is death. When I realize all of that, and yet God saved me through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, when I behold the panorama of my ugliness and Christ's loveliness, what should be my response? But gratitude, right? Like there's just no way that you can truly know the gracious gift of salvation and not be grateful. If someone today, this afternoon, gifted you $100 million, you would be thankful. And if you weren't thankful, it would just show that you had misunderstood what had been given to you. You had misunderstood what you should be grateful for. How much more has Christ given to us? Brothers and sisters, a good test of your walk with Christ is your your giving thanks and praise and gratitude to God for what he has done. Whether it's been five months or five years or five decades since you first received it, don't let Christ's salvation grow stale in your hearts. Uh, Don't cease to be amazed by his love. If you've never received that gift of salvation, that's what's offered to you this morning. Uh, That's what we want you to understand and know, the gift of salvation that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ, to be received by faith. That's why we're so grateful. You know, if salvation was something that we had earned, who's, who's grateful for that? When your boss gives you your paycheck, you might say thank you, but really you're like, yeah, I earned this. Uh, But when somebody gives you a gift, gratitude swells up in our hearts. And so brothers and sisters, if you have turned from your sin and been united to Christ, you and I, we have all that we need for life and godliness. All the spiritual insight and wisdom that we need is found in Christ. So brothers and sisters, don't abandon him. Don't seek to move beyond Christ. Instead, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, keep walking, knowing that very soon you will reach the celestial city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do praise you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. We thank you that you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Though we are unqualified due to our sin, even the sin we've committed this past week. Father, we never cease to be in need of your grace. And so would you never let us forget? Would you never let us be ungrateful for what you have given to us through the person of your son? We pray that you'd stir up that love and affection even now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, as I think about what is the one song that marvels supremely in the grace of God, 
I think about, and can it be, a four-verse meditation on the amazing love and grace that God has shown us in Christ. So that's what we're going to sing now as we conclude on page 15, and can it be. Would you stand and let's sing.